Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to St. Augustine to commemorate the 448th anniversary of the founding of the city. So I'm looking at a shadow very, very similar to the shadow that he saw on the same spot, on the same time of day, 400 and now 48 years ago. And that every year, even as I tell you now, puts a chill up my spine. We'll discuss slave documents from Florida's El Destino Plantation. Well, the El Destino Plantation was a, uh, an antebellum uh, plantation in what was uh, then considered Middle Florida. It's actually on the border of uh, Leon County and uh, Jefferson County. And travel the Orange Belt Railway. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The vocal ensemble Cantore San Augustine was part of the event commemorating the 448th anniversary of the founding of San Augustine. The city was founded in 1565 by Don Pedro Menendez de Avales as the oldest continuous European settlement in North America. Michael Gannon is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Florida and a former priest at Mission Nombre de Dios, the site where Menendez landed and established San Augustine. The Spanish discoverers of the New World in the 15th and 16th centuries built their first cities in the present Caribbean states, in Mexico, and in the South American countries of Colombia and Peru. Here in the United States of America, the first European city was founded in Florida by the Spaniard Pedro Menendez de Aviles. Because he had made his first landfall at Cape Canaveral on August 28, 1565, the feast day of St. Augustine of Hippo, Menendez decided to name his first Florida settlement St. Augustine. The European occupants of the site, now so well known to tourists, were 200 sailors, 500 soldiers, 100 farmers and craftsmen, some with their wives and children and also four Catholic priests. Eric Johnson is director of Mission Nombre de Dios. He explains the importance of the historic site where the founding of St. Augustine is reenacted. This is a very special event. This is our 448th anniversary as a city and the beginning of evangelization of the Christian faith in what we now call the United States. It's a very important site where you are today. This is the site where Pedro Menendez de Aviles landed, and Father Francisco Lopez de Mendoza Grajales offered to him the cross, and he knelt and kissed the cross. This is also the site of the first Franciscan mission in what we now call the United States, and the first shrine to Mary in what we now call the United States. So a very, very historic and very special place in many, many ways, and even more special because you're here today. 
As part of the commemoration of the founding of St. Augustine, City Commissioner and Vice Mayor Nancy Sykes-Klein read a proclamation. Whereas, on the eighth day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1565, Pedro Menendez de Avilés, by the act of claiming this land for the King of Spain, founded San Agustin in La Florida, the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in the land to become the United States. And whereas it is fitting that the events of that historic occasion be observed and recreated in the manner recorded 448 years ago, and whereas on the 8th of September, 1565, a solemn mass was offered on these grounds by Father Francisco Lopez de Mendoza Grajales, thus founding the parish of St. Augustine and establishing Christianity in these lands. And whereas September 8, 2013 marks the 448th anniversary of the founding of St. Augustine, now, therefore, the City Commission of the City of St. Augustine does hereby proclaim September 8, 2013, as Founders Day, in commemoration of the 448th anniversary of the founding of St. Augustine, our nation's oldest city. And further, in celebration of this 448th anniversary, we urge all of our citizens to participate in the festivities and commemoration of this singular event. Avila, Spain, the hometown of Pedro Menendez, is sister city to St. Augustine, Florida. Avila's Counselor for Culture, Roman Alvarez Gonzalez, represented a delegation from Spain at the Founders' Day event. Thank you for your lovely hospitality of uh, the citizen of San Agustin and of the city of San Agustin. Also, say you that we feel with a great honor for the invitation to come participate in the acts in commemoration of the landing of Menendez. Our presence in San Agustin uh, is for the, uh, to work in the relationship between the two sister cities, Aviles and San Agustin. St. Augustine's founder, Don Pedro Menendez de Avales, was brought to life by Chad Light. 2013 marks the 500th anniversary of the naming of Florida by Juan Ponce de Leon, so Chad Light has been portraying that Spanish explorer a lot this year. In January, Light played Ponce in the Florida Historical Society's original courtroom drama Ponce de Leon Landed Here, and he reprised the role for the FHS annual meeting and symposium in May. Chad Light is best known, though, for his portrayal of Don Pedro Menendez de Avilés. Correct. My bread and butter, so to speak, is in fact Don Pedro Menendez de Avilés. And uh, when I started reenacting a specific historic character, it was, of course, Don Pedro Menendez. The, um, the opportunities to represent Don Juan Ponce de Leon for San Augustine and for the state of Florida came out of that. Chad Light regularly portrays Menendez at the Fountain of Youth Park in St. Augustine and for various organizations throughout the state. His most meaningful performance, though, is the annual recreation of the founding of St. Augustine on September 8, 1565, when Menendez landed with 800 colonists. We have 
two vessels that are wooden vessels that use oars. They bring us into shore. Everyone on board is uh, dressed out in 16th century clothing. When we step off onto the shore, there's a group of reenactors, about 50, that are dressed out in period correct clothing as well. And we go through what we know about the ceremony that was immediately conducted as soon as Pedro Menendez stepped offshore. We know that he venerated the cross, and we know his captains venerated the cross, and then the Indians venerated the cross. And so this is a annual but seminal event here in San Augustine. It's very solemn. Uh, we try to represent some of the uh, ceremony that they would have gone through as well as an actual mass is performed at this event every year. And it's not, although a mass was performed here on September 8th, this is not a reenactment of a mass. It is, in fact, an actual Catholic mass. Bishop Felipe Estevez is 10th bishop of the Diocese of St. Augustine. As part of the Founders' Day event, Bishop Estevez held mass on the same site where Father Francisco Lopez held mass 448 years before. Bishop Estevez addressed the gathered crowd, recognizing in particular the delegation from Spain. Your presence this morning reveals that the encounter of races and cultures from one border of the Atlantic Ocean to the other border is going on. What took place on August 28, 1565, in this particular place, is not a yesterday concern for historians and anthropologists, but a living connection of peoples and cities in active reciprocity. The Mass today is shaped by the theme of beginnings. The liturgy celebrates the birth, nativity of the mother of Jesus Christ. The Mass today is exact in substance to the first one celebrated here by Father Lopez Mendoza de Grajales. It was also the historical beginning of the ancient city of St. Augustine, the first activity of the mission Nombre de Dios, the first sacrament performed in what is today the Cathedral Basilica of St. Augustine. And for all of these first events, we have reasons to give thanks with gratitude and humility. We remember, and by remembering, we affirm that we are co-members of a people and a destiny. Historian Michael Gannon points out that the original Mass held in St. Augustine in 1565 and the meal that followed is the real first Thanksgiving. When the Spaniards founded St. Augustine in Florida nearly 450 years ago, they proceeded to found our nation's first city government, first school, first hospital, first city plan, first parish church, and first mission to the native populations. It is our nation's city of centuries, founded one year following the death of Michelangelo and the birth of William Shakespeare. Not until 42 years later would English Jamestown in Virginia be founded. Not until 56 years later would the pilgrims in Massachusetts observe their famous Thanksgiving. St. Augustine's settlers celebrated the nation's first Thanksgiving over a half century earlier, 
on September 8, 1565. Following a religious service, the Spaniards shared a communal meal with the local native tribe. Cannon says that the menu for the real first Thanksgiving in St. Augustine was a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and red wine. Historical reenactor Chad Light says it's particularly moving for him to portray Don Pedro Menendez de Avales in the annual recreation of the founding of St. Augustine on the actual site where it occurred. I've been doing it for a while, and something happens every year. It's been uh, the sun has shined every year. And because of where we come ashore, the sun is always at my back for the most part. As soon as I step off on the same spot where Pedro Menendez stepped off, you have to understand the clothing that I'm wearing casts a certain shadow. My haircut, my beard. So I'm looking at a shadow very, very similar to the shadow that he saw on the same spot, on the same time of day, 400 and now 48 years ago. And that every year, even as I tell you now, puts a chill up my spine. The Founders' Day event commemorating the 448th anniversary of the establishment of St. Augustine as the oldest continuous European settlement in North America is presented by the group Florida Living History at the Mission Nombre de Dios. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. To find out about all the great work the Florida Historical Society does, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the FHS. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The Swanee River Far, far away There's where my heart is turning Above does where the old folks stay All up and down the whole creation sadly I roam 
still longing for the old plantation and for the old folks at home. The plantation mentioned in Florida's state song Old Folks at Home by Stephen Foster could be the El Destino Plantation. Documents from the El Destino Plantation are archived at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History. Well, the El Destino Plantation was a, uh, an antebellum uh, plantation in what was uh, then considered Middle Florida. It's actually on the border of uh, Leon County and uh, Jefferson County. Uh, and it operated uh, from about 1828 uh, through the American Civil War, uh, and the property was actually owned by uh, descendants of the uh, original owners up through the 20th century. Uh, in fact, the property was just recently uh, sold, you know, and, and is now in, in private hands. But up until that point, it was uh, still owned by the family. And you have some fascinating documents here from El Destino Plantation, uh, a list of slaves. Uh, the first one we're going to be looking at is from uh, 1856. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, sure. We're actually looking at a, uh, a legal-sized uh, piece of paper. It's a sort of a, a brown uh, piece of paper weathered by age, uh, but it's a, a pre-lined sheet of paper with ink uh, drawings, and, and the, the title is simply listed, uh, or simply titled, A List of Negroes on uh, George Jones's El Destino Plantation, and then the date, uh, January 7th, 1856. And it, they, it, along with the names, there's some uh, very interesting uh, numbers listed. What are those? Right, and this is probably what, what is uh, most interesting about this document. If someone were to just uh, uh, open this up, it, it looks uh, uh, very sort of nondescript. It doesn't look like there's much here. It's just a list of names. Uh, there's a, a column here for age, but it's the third column that's really interesting. At the top of the column, it says quality. Uh, and then next to each uh, slave's name, age, there's a number. It's either one uh, or uh, there's a number here that says three quarters. One is uh, one quarter. And that's a ranking of the, of the quality of the, uh, of the slave in, in terms of, of labor. So the plantation owners were ranking their slaves. And, and, and what's in interesting and what's important about this um, is that it really shows the, uh, uh, that the, the slaves were considered a commodity more than anything else. So they were part of the uh, plantation system as as a means of production, not necessarily as as a human being. So it really helps to kind of describe um, the condition. Well, it helps to tell us a lot about the condition of slaves and uh, uh, and and their their life and and uh, really how difficult and, and it's hard to believe, but how kind of uh, it was really a different world. You know how strange this was. You have another uh, document here from uh, El Destino Plantation from 1856, and it has uh, uh, some other information about the, the slaves, including their families, right? Right, yeah, and this is also um, rather interesting. Uh, so this is another uh, uh, inventory list, so to speak, and it's, uh, again, just, just titled uh, List of Negroes at El Destino Plantation. But what's interesting is that the overseer of the plantation decided to uh, break up uh, each slave into uh, their uh, their families. So we have a list of, uh, it would be a slave's name, and then their family. So every um, uh, child who was uh, considered part of that, that family, uh, and it's listed that way. And uh, on this particular list, we don't have a... Uh, uh, a column for quality. We even we don't actually don't have a column for uh, age either, except for the children. The children actually have an age associated with them, but everyone else, I guess, is just considered an adult. Um, and uh, uh, but it's it's the fact that they're uh, 
really grouped together as, as individual families. It's, it's interesting and, and quite rare with these uh, slave inventories. And these documents are handwritten, of course, and, and this, this age paper almost looks like the parchment uh, uh, on, on this list. You have another legal document between an overseer uh, named Jesse Watley and, and plantation owner George Noble Jones. This is on uh, kind of blue stationery, it looks like, uh, but tell us what this is. Right. This is another uh, kind of interesting document. And the Eldestino Plantation uh, uh, papers, or the collection of papers, um, consists primarily of just legal documents, really just sort of dry, you know, day-to-day operations and uh, information about, you know, uh, what's being produced there. But every once in a while, you'll come across a document like this. This is the original contract uh, that Jesse Watley, the overseer, would have signed uh, and actually did sign uh, with George Noble Jones, the owner of the plantation, that stipulated what the uh, overseer was uh, expected to do. Essentially, it's a job description for a uh, the overseer of a slave plantation, which is, uh, again, sort of uh, wild to think about now. But um, it's kind of interesting. It goes into detail about what what's expected of Jesse Watley um, as the overseer of the plantation. If you'd like, I'd read just one line here. Sure. Essentially, uh, George Noble Jones or his lawyers are drafting this document, and the one line says, uh, you know, he's expected to take care of the Negroes on said plantation uh, in sickness and in health and to, uh, looks like it says teach. That does look like teach. Okay, so it can be a little bit difficult to read. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it says to treat. So to treat them with, uh, and what looks like it says humanity here, which is kind of interesting, to treat them with humanity, uh, to obey the lawful instructions of George Jones, his agent or agents, which is kind of interesting. So that's really the the basic description of what, um, and it's a little bit ambiguous too, so it really doesn't say anything about um, uh, any forceful treatment or harmful treatment. It says to treat them with humanity, uh, to obey the laws of George Noble Jones, not the laws of the state of Florida, but the laws of the plantation owner. You have a lot of other fascinating documents here from El Destino Plantation, and we'll talk about them another time, but uh, thanks for telling us about these today. Absolutely. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History. Oh, my heart weary This is Florida Frontiers. The town of St. Petersburg, Florida, was named after the hometown of Russian Peter Demons, the man who built the Orange Belt Railway from Sanford to St. Petersburg. Chip Ford has more. The West Orange Trail and the South Lake Lake Mineola Scenic Trail connect together in Central Florida to provide over 30 miles of pathways for outdoor enthusiasts. Both were built as part of the Rails to Trails movement that started in the United States during the 1980s. In Central Florida, the trails were built over what was the Orange Belt Railroad. At the turn of the 20th century, Florida was crisscrossed by numerous railroads that created a web of connection between Florida communities and the rest of the United States. The histories of well-known railroad lines that belong to Henry Plant and Henry Flagler are numerous. But what about lesser-known railways, such as the Orange Belt? Well, the Orange Belt line was uh, actually started by a couple of three investors who uh, 
couldn't pay the bill to Mr. Demons. Mr. Demons was a Russian immigrant that owned a sawmill in Longwood, and uh, they had bought wood cross ties from him to build the line, and they couldn't pay their bill of $9,400, so Mr. Demons foreclosed on them. His sawmill was running out of timber to cut in the Longwood area, so he was looking for another uh, venture and decided the railroad business would be a good one to go into. So he took over the charter of the Orange Belt and started building it from Sanford, uh, or actually Monroe, near Sanford, to a point on Lake Apopka, which later became Oakland. That was Ken Murdoch, curator at the Central Florida Railroad Museum, who goes on to explain the importance of railroads in Florida. Well, a town that had a railroad had a connection with the rest of the world. I mean, it was an important thing because there were no highways. There were uh, the only other means of of transit in Florida was uh, on the rivers and lakes uh, with steamboats. So this brought a, a what we would con- or what they considered a rapid means of transportation. It was very fast as compared to what they had before. The arrival of the Orange Belt Railroad transformed the tiny resort town of Oakland, Florida. Here is what happened. The owner of the resort in Oakland promised uh, quite a bit of land to the Orange Belt if they would build into that area. So uh, once they reached Oakland, that became the headquarters of the railroad and it became the uh, the homes of the uh, investors uh, were built there. The shops for the railroad was built there. There was a hospital for the railroad there, so it became the railroad center for the Orange Belt. From Oakland, the Orange Belt Railroad extended to Pinellas Point, which later was renamed St. Petersburg, after Demon's hometown in Russia. Following in the footsteps of Plant and Flagler's success, though, was something that would elude Demons. Well, the Orange Belt was never profitable. The first train into St. Petersburg only had one passenger on it, so that was an omen of things to come. So it, uh, Mr. Demons was uh, in debt for $900,000, and uh, his interest payment came due at the end of the first year, and the railroad had made no money, and he couldn't make the payment. It was foreclosed on, and uh, he was out of the railroad business. After the bankruptcy, the railroad was then leased to the Plant Railroad, and then later bought by Flagler's Atlantic Coast Railway. The uh, Orange Belt from Trilby to St. Pete is still in service today. Uh, It was a vital link for the... um, mainline trains of the Atlantic coastline on their west coast route um, from Chicago. They would come come down the west coast to that to Trilby and then go to St. Petersburg on the old Orange Belt. And it's still used today by CSX. The remainder of the line from Trilby to Sanford has been abandoned in segments over a period of probably 20-25 years. The only section left is a short section of that original Orange Belt still in existence. Some of the Orange Belt Railroad buildings still exist in Oakland, 
and a station that belonged to the railroad still stands as part of the South Lake Historical Village in Claremont, Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and enjoy our daily posts This Day in Florida History on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.